Hi, everybody. This is Brian Hamrick from the Rental Property Owner and Real Estate Investor Podcast. If you want to learn how to not lose money in real estate investing, then you have to listen to my good friend Sam Newell's podcast called Recession Proof Real Estate Investing. Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host, and it is my goal to educate you on how to make profitable, low risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. I interview the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they have learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become my goal to help others invest for double digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession proof. Well, as you know, I'm uh, apartments is a big thing that I'm into, although that's been relatively stable. And uh, I'm not looking for any new apartment deals right now, just because I, I like to invest in my own backyard. And uh, it, I'm in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where it's it's a really hot market. So I'm, I'm right. kind of sitting on the fence when it comes to apartments. But when it comes to self-storage and non-performing notes, that's, that's where I'm really um, putting a lot of my time and investment right now. Cool. No, and, and when you and I talked, I was really impressed with the system that you guys have. And man, you've made some great money. You've helped people stay in their home, it sounds like, um, and also made a great return for yourselves and your investors. So um, I'm, I'm guessing most people have not looked into investing in, in non-performing notes. So break that down a little bit, because that's a really cool asset class that you know I'm looking at your fund. I want to learn more about for sure. Yeah. Now it's, um, so I can talk about what I've done, uh, previously. I can't talk about what I'm doing right now. No problem. Because um, of 506B rules. Yep. Um, but I can talk about what You're I've done. Te- teasing the audience. They won't. Be- <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I have to have a, a staff. So with my investors, I, I typically do 506B funds. Right. And I have to have established yeah. relationships and all that. Um, but I will talk about notes in general and, and somewhat specifically with some of the examples of, of what, what my partner and I have done. Mm-hmm. So as you know, I host a podcast, the Rental Property Owner and Real Estate Investor Podcast. And about two years ago, I interviewed a guy named Gene Chandler. And he was investing in non-performing notes, mostly uh, single-family residential non-performing notes. And I liked what he was doing so much that I called him up a month later and said, Hey, you know, I, I really would like to find out more about how you do business and invest with you. Mm-hmm. So since that point, we have purchased 12 non-performing notes together. Uh, I put up the money, he does the work and we split the profit 50, 50 and uh, our average return. So nine of those notes have paid off. Like we've either um, gotten the, the homeowner reperforming. Mm-hmm. and then sold their performing note or we've in some cases we've had to foreclose because they they the homeowners want to come to the table our goal is to keep homeowners in their home right. you know buy these performing notes and you know maybe i should back up and just so people know what i'm talking about mm-hmm. uh, if you have a mortgage or a land contract or some sort of contract for deed on your home that's that's what we're talking about the note the paper mm-hmm. and if you're paying and if you if if you've taken out a mortgage or a loan and you're paying on that loan every month, well your loan is considered to be performing. Right. If you stop paying for whatever reason, 
well, your, your loan is now non-performing. And you can make a lot of money as an investor buying these non-performing notes because you can buy them at a discount. Uh, typically, we're paying, depending on the quality of the note, the, the uh, quality and the value of the property, uh, the quality of the, the actual uh, person who took out the loan, uh, we will pay anywhere from 35 to 65% of the unpaid balance on that note. Okay, so we're buying it at a discount. Uh, we're also buying it at a discount of the actual cash value of the underlying property. So quite often when we buy a note, we're making sure that the, the, if we were to have to foreclose and sell that property, um, we're buying that note at 50% in most cases of what it would actually sell for on the open market. So as you can imagine, wow. there's, a, there's a huge spread there in, in the amount of money you can make. Uh, yeah. our, our goal, and you do make a lot of money by working with the homeowners, trying to figure out how to keep them in the home, get them on a payment schedule that's going to work for everybody. Uh, but you also can make money if, if, if you, that doesn't work out and you have to foreclose. So you cover all your angles. So it seems to a lot of people because it's, it's a, a new concept and it's somewhat um, confusing in the beginning, it seems like a risky uh, concept. But yeah. what, we've, what I've learned through the 12 notes I purchased with Gene, just the two of us, is that our average return of the 12 notes that we purchased Nine of them are done. Like we've, we've uh, made our profit and moved on. Mm-hmm. Our average return on that, those nine notes was 80%. Wow. And that, that's, most of those were within uh, 12 months, less than 12 months. Um, some of them, cow. the two of them, it took a year and a half, almost two years. But our average return on investment is 80%. Wow. Uh, the, the other three, one of them is up for sale right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them, the, the uh, homeowner declared bankruptcy, which kind of sets back the clock another six to 12 months. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, one of them, I can't, I, I can't remember uh, what, what the other one is, but uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you both an example of how we made a killing on one of the notes and how we lost money. Would you like to hear that? Oh, yeah, I'd love it. Yeah. Okay, so, so I'll start with the one we made a killing on. So Gene purchased a note on a property in a place called Middlebury, Indiana. Never been there, but I looked at the photo of this property. And by the way, we only paid $5,000 for this note. Wow. Uh, and when I saw the photo, I could see why. It's, it was a shack. It was basically a shack with holes in the roof and falling down. And I said, Gene, why? Someone was living there? No, it was, it was actually, so what we found out, it was vacant and abandoned. Oh, okay. uh, and what we found out once we purchased the note was that the, it was already an REO. So the, the hedge fund that we bought the note from didn't even realize that it had finished the foreclosure process and it was an REO. So we were able to sell it right away. Um, wow. But I, but you know, we paid 5,000 for this shack. And I said to Gene, what, why would you, why would we even bother with this? Yeah. And he said, well, it's because when you look across the street, there are brand new townhomes that are 200, 250,000 a piece. There you and go. right next door is an Amish farm. And this is right in their front lawn. Uh, so we're going to take it to the Amish uh, farmers next door and sell it to them for $35,000. Wow. And that's what we did. We had a, a realtor take it next door to the Amish farmers. They paid 35,000 for it. And I'm sure they were just going to tear it down, but they bought it for the land. 
Yeah. So, so our return on investment at, uh, after paying back my 5000 and the realtor and other expenses, we made $24,000. <laughs> and that represents almost a 500% return. And we did that in under two months. Jeez. That's amazing. That's, yeah. that's really cool. Yeah, well, so, so, so just to recap, I mean, I heard a couple things that, that were interesting to me there. You're, you're buying these notes or essentially you're buying someone's mortgage and you fully expect to hold it if, if they're going to keep paying. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people could feel like um, maybe uncomfortable with buying someone's mortgage. Um, but in a lot of cases, you know, I've, I've felt like banks can be extremely predatory, you know, or, or not treat people humanely. And, and I'm guessing, I mean, maybe you can answer this for me, but I'm guessing you guys are pretty good at working with the owners and probably a lot better than most banks are. Yes, that is true uh, in many cases. I mean, there's there are banks out there who basically banks have to work under federal and corporate guidelines. Mm -hmm. So they do what they can, but they have to treat everyone the same. They can't yep. give individual preferences to one certain buyer. They have to kind of treat everyone with the same rules. So we have a lot more flexibility than banks. The, the other thing I'll say about banks and lenders is that the types of notes that we're typically purchasing, the, the balance or the unpaid balance is under $50,000. Okay. And most lenders do not want to make a loan of that amount. In fact, if it's under $60,000, they just don't want to make those loans because right. it, it's just as much work and they make a lot less money making loans on those amounts. So um, these are somewhat, in, these would be considered subprime type loans. Right. You know, so they're charging a higher interest rate. And when we buy a, a note, I'll give you a, just a, a quick example. So let's say we buy a note where that the, the unpaid balance is $50,000. Mm -hmm. And we buy that note for $25,000. Uh, if that person was paying 10% interest, and usually you're, they're going to be paying up to 10%. Uh, once you get past that, you're kind of getting into usury laws and you're, you're, you could get in some trouble. So these notes are typically paying 10% interest. Uh, if we buy it at 25000 well, now we're making 20% return on that money mm -hmm. if we can get the homeowner to be repaying. And that's pretty good. Yeah, uh, that's killer. Yeah. So, I mean... You wouldn't actually, I mean, I, I would think you, you would love them to stay and, and just get a 20% cash flow on your money. Yeah, so we'd love them to stay. Uh, if and, and if they do stay and we get them performing and we season that note, say, six to 12 months, now we can sell off a performing note. So it, with using that same example, if we buy, buy that note for $25,000, they owe $50,000. And we get it reperforming. Well, we're making twenty percent return on our money. If we sell it to someone who's happy with, say, a ten percent return, well, then we can sell it for fifty thousand dollars. Our profit is going to be twenty five thousand. That's what we have into it. So that's a hundred percent return. Yeah. So you can see how getting getting uh, in with the homeowner, getting them to trust you, working with them, and getting them reperforming can, can be a win-win for everybody. 
Absolutely. And that's huge. And, and that's what I think um, was really interesting to me is you have multiple exit strategies. You have an exit strategy of, hey, if they just don't want to pay, if it's an abandoned shack or if, if you know they have no way of paying and they're just moving out anyways, okay, so you, you follow the plan and, and you, know, you sell it. Um, like to the Amish farmer, that, that was a great story. Uh, or you get them, you know, you work with them. You, like you said, form a relationship and, and take care of them and, and help them stay in the property. And you still get either a 20 to uh, maybe a hundred percent return. I mean, those are two really good exit strategies. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious, you were mentioning 500% returns and 80% returns, hundred percent returns. You, you said your average is 80. So, I mean, are all of them, I mean, to have an average of 80, you have to have getting over 100% on, on at least a few of them, right? Oh, yeah. Some of them, yeah, we're getting 200, you know, the 500% example. And we've had two losers. We've had, I mean, things do go wrong. You can lose money. I mean, there is risk. And uh, we had two losers. Uh, I'll give you one example. Uh, we bought a note. It was $16,500. And it was for a single family home here in Grand Rapids, which real estate is hot right now. Um, mm-hmm. It was especially hot at that point. So we knew that the, the actual cash value of this property was at least $70,000. And oh. we picked up this non-performing note for $16,500. Well, it was an out-of-state owner who had been renting the property, and we ended up giving him cash for keys. We basically said, look, we'll, we'll just give you $1,000. It might have been $500. We'll give you $500. You just sign over the deed. We'll take the keys, and we won't have to go through foreclosure or anything. Because it was an out-of-state owner. Um, mm-hmm. the, the renters who had been living there had already moved out. Once we got possession of the property and we walked inside, it was like, you walk in the front door and you're, you're going downhill. Oh no. <laughs> you walk out the back door and you're going uphill. Uh-oh. The foundation on this property was completely shot. Oh, and no. the entire house needed to be lifted and the entire foundation needed to be redone. So right away we realized, okay, we're not going to sell this for $70,000. Yeah. Uh, we worked with a realtor who put it up uh, on the market for Mm $30,000 and we actually found a buyer, someone who was willing to pay $30,000. They came through with their inspector and, uh, and then, and they knew what the issue was with the Mm -hmm. the floor, but after about three weeks, they backed out. They said, no, we're not going to buy. So then we got it under contract for $25,000. And uh, after two or three weeks, that buyer backed out too. So finally we sold it uh, for $20,000. And after uh, paying the realtor and some expenses, uh, yeah, I think there were some taxes in there. Uh, we had $16,500 that we had originally paid for the note. We ended up losing about $1,800 on that. Our uh, return on investment ended up being like minus five, minus 6%. Right. And how long did you hold it? Uh, we probably held that one about five or six months before okay. we were finally able to get rid of it. When you're dealing with these lower price points, $1,800 or $1,500 or, I mean, even a couple thousand isn't a massive risk for the type of reward that you can get. Because, you know, if you're getting average 80%, I, I would be okay with 
losing two was it two out of 12 that you've you've lost on yeah so far two out of 12 now two or three of the, those 12 are still out there and we're still working through them uh, mm-hmm. but yeah i mean yeah the other one by the way it was a very similar situation we ended up losing minus five or six percent on that Got it. because keep That's in mind so we're over. buying these at such a discount that even if yeah. we can't sell them anywhere near the actual cash value we're still uh, likely to break even or, or maybe just lose a little bit of money. Well, I mean, that's great. I mean, so you have a great exit strategy and your worst case scenario exit strategy, you're still doing pretty good. And, and over 90% of the time, you're getting an 80% return on your money. I mean, yeah, on that's average. huge. I, I don't know of any other investment. And and usually when I hear numbers like that, it's it just sounds crazy. But um, you guys are doing it and, and that's awesome because most, I mean, I, people kind of question, uh, I have a statement about my investments and I've never made, I tell people I've never made less than a 20% return on my own investments. Um, I've never lost. And that kind of sounds crazy to a few people. 80% sounds a little bit ridiculous, but when you talk through what you're doing, it actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's fantastic. Yeah. And by the way, I would never go out and market uh, <laughs> the fact that I, I'm making 80%. And, you know, we split, Gene and I split that. So I'm making 40% return on my money. Oh, darn. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if you go out and, and market that and say, oh, yeah, I'm making, I'm making 40%, um, people aren't even going to look at what you have to offer. So, uh, so what would you market if, let's say you and I were talking about doing well, it together? I, yeah, I don't want to touch that. Okay, gotcha. Um, so, oh, right for the five hundred six. Yeah, yeah. I got to be. I have to be careful about what I what I say and don't you say. You do, you do. Um, no, but I appreciate you explaining that. So, the areas you're doing that are they rural? Are they downtown? I mean, are you in the ghetto? I'm I'm kind of curious about. Other than the one next to the Amish farmer, where are these properties and and what do they look like for the most? They're part? they're primarily in Michigan and Indiana. Uh, although we have one in West Virginia, I think we have one in Ohio, but primarily Indiana and West and, and Michigan, just because Gene, he's, he's out of Indiana and he likes to drive around and actually see the properties. And, and that way he mm-hmm. can go and, and talk in person to the homeowner uh, and work with right. them directly. And he's very good at negotiating. He's very good at talking to people on a, on a human level. Um, so he's, he's got a lot of skills that it it takes to be successful in this type of of business. Nice. Okay. Oh, and and to answer your question, yeah, some of them are rural, some of them are in subdivisions. Uh, here in Grand Rapids, we we've had a couple that are just in some some C type subdivisions mm-hmm. that have turned out very well for us. Nice. Okay. Well, and it sounds like I, I like the fact that you said he's got a human factor to him because that's really you know when I've. I, as a realtor, I've worked with people in foreclosure and really not fun situations. And I think that's what they really appreciate is when someone can treat them right, treat them like a human, have some compassion and empathy for their situation. Whereas, and this is just my experience, the banks do not typically. I had a gentleman I worked with who lost his wife and was trying to sell his house. He had huge medical bills and man, the bank wasn't giving him a single extra day. Not an, I mean, we just needed a, an extra few days to close this deal. And he literally almost lost. It was a $400,000 house and he had about 40,000 in equity. He almost lost all of that because the bank wouldn't budge a single day. 
we've had some very negative experiences with banks. And when you throw in a human factor and, and being able to have that compassion I was talking about, it makes a huge difference to people. And, and I'm sure that's part of your guys' success is if your partner's good at that and, and has that empathy, then, I mean, that's probably a huge part of what makes us work. Yeah. All, all real estate, uh, you know, whether it's notes or self-storage or apartments, it's a people business. You're, you're dealing and working with people. And, and especially in notes, when you're, you're working with a distressed homeowners, distressed because for some reason they can't pay their mortgage. And, and quite often it's because they have medical bills, emergencies that came up. Uh, you have to treat them uh, with respect and, and on a human level. Uh, banks have to treat everybody the same way. You know, mm-hmm. they, they can't. Uh, show that same type of compassion uh, because it will get them in trouble in other situations. Well, you did it over here. Why can't you do it over here? So they, they have to be very by the book. Um, We're lucky in that we can be very flexible. Uh, Still following the the federal laws and the, you know, the guy, the guidelines that we're supposed to follow, but we can be much more flexible. Absolutely. No, that's awesome. Well, look, you know, the, the worst case scenario I've heard basically on, on your deals doesn't sound that terrible. Um, I was hoping you had a crazier, we lost thousands. Sto- no, I'm just kidding. Um, but, you know, the name of the, the podcast is, is Recession Proof Real Estate Investing. And I'm kind of curious, Brian, you know, you, you've been doing really well with apartments and, and non-performing <clears throat> notes. Where were you, though, during 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10? Uh, good question. So yeah, I, I'm glad you reminded me, uh, we're talking about recession proof real estate. I, I was investing in single families out of state. I was living in Los Angeles, watching the bubble, the asset bubble just grow and, and yeah. fill up with, with hot air, um, watching appreciation and prices going sky high. And I realized, wow, cause just having like a, a ground zero uh, perspective living in Los Angeles, I could see what was happening around the country. Now, I actually thought that um, interest rates would, would, like when the bubble burst, interest rates would go sky high. That did not happen. But in 2005, my wife and I, we owned a condo in Santa Monica and we knew we were going to be moving to Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I said, we need to do it now because that bubble is going to burst. And uh, it did burst, but it was about two or three years later. Okay. Uh, and when we moved to Grand Rapids in 2005, I just sat on the sideline uh, waiting for that bubble to burst. Hmm. And when it did, that's when I started buying. I bought my first 12 unit in 2008, bought hmm. a 37 unit uh, a year later, and in between was buying four units, duplexes, uh, five units, six unit, and just growing my portfolio. So when you ask where was I during that recession, I was buying. And that's leading awesome. up to the recession, I was waiting. That, that's interesting that you saw that because a lot of investors, even sophisticated investors, our friend Rod Cleef, you know, a lot of people who had been in real estate for a long time maybe didn't see that I see that. Um, I think California is a great example because I feel like anything real estate there is more extreme, you know, the, their increases are more extreme, their downturns are more extreme. You know, they had a huge slowdown this last year and all my realtor friends were just panicking all my California realtor friends. And 
we've felt that a little bit in Utah, but and and Idaho where I'm licensed, but not nearly as much as California. So I, I, that's an interesting perspective you had, and I, I am curious. Um, you remember what price you paid per door for those twelve units, those first units you bought? I probably paid about thirty, about thirty thousand a door. <laughs> that's what that's I awesome. paid at the time. I, I remember at the time it was a it was a nine nine percent cap rate. Wow. And this is in a prime, like right now, it's a prime historic area of Grand Rapids. It's, it's in Heritage Hill. And cool. uh, that area has just taken off like gangbusters. So um, if I were to sell it today, I'd sell it at a six cap. And, awesome. and, and we've definitely improved the NOI. So <laughs> you can imagine how much value we've, we've been able to add over the, the past 10 years. That's so cool, man. That's awesome. Well, so I'm curious what, you know, you kind of saw the bubble happening and, and, bursting and and you're maybe thinking interest rates might go high but they went went down which was amazing um i bought my first property in 2010 i think i got a 3.5 interest rate that was fun wow <laughs> i'm i'm curious like what drove you to to get into real estate i mean let's let's take it back to brian in, in high school did you dream of being this non-performing note investor and an apartment investor because i know that's not the what you started with for your career so Walk us into that and, and how you got into it. Wow. No, no. So in high school and college, I dreamed of making movies. I wanted to be, I wanted to go to Hollywood and I wanted not be an actor, um, but be like a producer, director, writer of, of films or television. Cool. And I ended up uh, falling into a niche that was just as good and paid very well as a movie marketing. So I ended up uh, working as a, an editor, copywriter, and producer of movie trailers. Oh, wow. And I did that for 20 years. So I have 20 years experience in movie marketing. And uh, it wasn't until God, I was 10 years into that when I, when I realized, boy, I'm making, I'm making good money. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is just sitting in a savings account or a money market. I didn't even know what a mutual fund was uh, mm-hmm. until I turned 30, until I really started focusing on, okay, what do I do now? I mean, how do I invest for the future and create long-term wealth as opposed to just a a paycheck every week? Right. And and like I said, I didn't know what a mutual fund was. I barely understood the stock market. Uh, I I ended up putting my money in with a financial advisor and she put me in a lot of tech stocks and I lost a lot of that money when the, the tech bubble burst back in 2000. And, uh, and then I, then I read, uh, rich dad, poor dad, as a lot of people do. And it just kind of opened my eyes. I said, wow, you know, this, I, this whole way of thinking that I have about real estate and, and taking out loans and, you know, paying cash for things. Uh, I, I really, you know, my eyes were opened by what was in rich dad, poor dad. And that's when I started thinking, okay, well, let's, go out and buy some properties. Here I am in LA, everything's too expensive. So I joined a network that was buying properties in good appreciating areas around the country, like New Mexico uh, and uh, North Carolina, South Carolina. And I ended up buying seven single family homes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, I, I didn't do very well on them. I'd say I broke even after tax benefits. I've sold them all off since then. Okay. But it got it wet my appetite, and I realized, okay, the yeah. single family homes is too slow for me. 
Mm-hmm. I, it's, it's not going to build wealth in such a way that I can be financially independent in five, 10 years. Right. So I realized, okay, multifamily apartments, that's the way to go. And that, that, you know, takes me up to 2008 when I got off the fence and started buying. Got it. So you started with a single family. And I, I mean, I love that because almost every successful, sophisticated, experienced real estate investor like you that I've interviewed started with single family. Then they went to duplexes, fourplexes, 12 plexes, 20 plexes. And then they thought, man, why don't I go buy a larger apartment buildings? Then they'll buy apartment buildings, storage units, and they'll go bigger and bigger. And I'm kind of curious uh, what, what your opinion is of this, but a lot of them say it's just as easy. It's just as much work to do a hundred unit as it is a, a four unit. It's a little bit more money, a little bit more, um, you know, units to, to underwrite and look at. But at the end of the day, it's, it's way more profitable and, and really not that much more work. And the risk is a little bit lower because you have economies of scale. Um, what would you say about that? Uh, it's, it's just as easy in some ways and it's harder in other ways. Um, as you know, there's a big difference between residential property and commercial property mm-hmm. and how you value it and how you, how you do your due diligence on it. Um, if you're, when I was buying single families, I could afford to make a mistake because it was right. just my money. Uh, when I'm buying multifamily and apartments, I'm usually, uh, I either have an investor or I've syndicated. So it's other people's money that I'm playing with. And I have to be much more careful with that. Uh, and in addition, I have to raise that money and put together marketing packages and, right. and inform and educate my investors on what we're buying. So it's a bigger, it's, it's bigger and um, a little bit more intimidating to do an apartment complex from that perspective, because there's a lot more moving pieces to it. Uh, getting the loan, uh, it's just, it's, I'd rather get a commercial loan. It's easier. Uh, I qualify yeah. uh, for commercial loans. I don't know that I would even qualify for a residential loan, but I haven't tried to get one in probably eight years. <laughs> I know it's hard for me to get a, a loan. I mean, I make pretty good money and um, self-employed though. So for some reason, you know, I'll, I'll call off, qualify for way less of a home than a lot of my clients who, uh, you know, just graduated from college and just got the first job. So it's kind of interesting how yeah, we, we don't fit in their box. We have to fit in the yeah. box that says, okay, we've got two years of W2 income and we show the same, you know, income on our tax returns and it's steady. Yeah. Uh, we, you and I don't fit into that because we, every year we're making different amounts depending on, and we yeah. have no idea what that's going to be because, we're entrepreneurs. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have a good friend uh, to speak to that point. He's a very high producing realtor in St. George, Utah. And uh, if he hits his goal by, by uh, November, he just takes all of December off and maybe some of January and he's making seven figures. So he deserves it. But uh, yeah, I mean, and when you're an entrepreneur, you can choose what you do when you're a real estate investor. Maybe you just do a couple of deals and, and you're done for the year and, um, yeah, it's interesting. And I think that's what scares banks, but going back to apartment deals and non-recourse loans, and it is more intimidating. Um, but I, I think you said something that's very key and very important that our listeners need to focus on is 
you realized and like most people do that you can't scale, you can't retire on single family homes. Um, you know, Grant Cardone, my mentor, um, via his books and, and training, um, says you should never, ever, ever buy anything less than 16 units. Now I agree with him and I disagree with him. I disagree with him because you have to start somewhere and some people can make great money buying townhomes and homes and duplexes and fourplexes. And I've had plenty of clients and myself included, uh, that have made great returns, but, um, I think 16 units and up are better. I mean, what do you think about that statement? For personally, I agree. I agree that I would not. Well, no, I don't. I don't know that I do agree because I think location is important. I, I, I do agree that buying commercial property is much better than residential. But I'll, I'll say two things. One is the the historic area, his Heritage Hill, where I've bought a lot of properties. I own some duplexes, four unit, five unit, six unit, um, a twelve unit uh, there, and I love those properties just because it's such a great area. Yep. So uh, if I was following uh, Grant Cardone's advice, I, would, I wouldn't own those. Uh, yeah, and, and that's actually my exact reasoning is, A, you have to start somewhere. So maybe you don't have a network and you can't raise a down payment for a large apartment complex. Or maybe, you know, maybe you just find a really good deal on a duplex, just like you're saying, in a good location. Whether it's you know, a local bank or even a private seller, just make sure you have a little bit longer time baked into the deal than you plan on holding it. And if it is a long-term hold, then just make sure you have something, you know, built into that. You don't, you know, you can't increase, the rate can't increase above a certain percentage. And so maybe it's five points, maybe it's three points, but maybe pay a little bit more upfront for that peace of mind later on. So that's like probably one of the biggest mistakes is like getting into loans with no real exit strategy and, and then just praying for the best. I mean, you really have to have something actionable because especially with private financing and, bank, and local bank financing is their appetites change. You know, I might say today, Hey, I, yeah, I want payments. And I'll, I'll extend your loan for another 10 years, but who knows in 10 years, I may say, no, no, I need the money for something else, you know? And, and that's the, and that's the thing people's desires and wants change. So make sure you bake that into your deal to have that soft landing. And, and I think the other thing, you know, a lot of people are, again, they're looking at those four and 5% cap rates and just, you know, thinking that they can do a value add where the value adding may, may be done. And so if yeah. you might be able to keep raising that rent, but that's really what, when the recession comes, you know, the tip of the spear, so to speak, is that a class property that you've raised the rents to like the top of the market. Yeah. That's what really gets affected is the very top of the market, and the very bottom of the market. So, you know, can you, be in something that's safe that like, you know, if somebody loses their job because unemployment all of a sudden spikes up to eight or 9%, 10% and, and then rent renters, you know, are probably going to be the ones first affected. Right. And so, you know, are, are they going to be able to afford the rent on unemployment? You know, okay. if you're at seven, $800 a month rent, or even a thousand dollar a month rent, they might be able to make, make ends meet. But if the rent's $4,000 a month, they're screwed, man. That's a tough, yeah. that's a tough call if they lose their job. So I think, you know, um, not saying to stay away from a class property, but um, I was like just <laughs> caution yourself from like, yeah. can I, you know, can I really add this all this extra value here, or am I just being overly optimistic? Because so many people just want to do a deal to say they've done a deal, 
Yeah. You know, and I get that. I mean, I, I, I feel like that all the time. I, you know, you yeah. want to do deals, but you know, you don't want to do anything that's going to like, you know, put in jeopardy everything you've worked hard to do. Uh, you, you had some really good points there. The, the one I want to go back to is that, that clause where, okay, if I have a balloon payment and for the listeners that don't maybe understand a balloon payment, you're, the loan ends maybe at year 10 and all of a sudden you have to pay the balance of the loan. And sometimes you don't have a million bucks on hand, you know, most of the time or, or if you're banking on refinancing and rates have gone up by a huge amount, that can be really tough to do. And I actually know a couple operators, they're doing three and five year loans and, Mm -hmm. and they're not worried about it because they just think these low rates are going to stay low forever. But what if rates go up and values don't go up as much as you think? You're not necessarily going to be able to refi or sell at the time. So you have to plan for the worst there. One of my lenders said to me yesterday, he said, everything's great until a plane flies into a building. And (laughs) you just, you never know what type of international disasters and crises like hit and things that are totally out of your control. I mean, you know, I mean, we're in a great, economy right now. I mean, unemployment's low, interest rates are low. So there's a lot of consumer confidence, but just one weird thing that like, and that happens that could, you know, um, change everything. I mean, politics change. I mean, all sorts of stuff that just a new president could change everything, you know, just a little bit of policy change, you know, a new president in a different country. I mean, things can be affected. And so I, interesting story about balloon payments or, uh, you know, a bank calling a note due. my, the broker owner of my company, he's the most successful now a century 21 broker for residential in the world. Um, George Morris, great guy. I'm, I'm starting his, his commercial division. He's been all residential until now really? and just hugely successful. But there was a time in the downturn where he was struggling. He was in real estate and and all of a sudden he owed $30,000 on a house and he almost lost his personal residence. And he told that story mm-hmm. yesterday. And, and I think people need to hear those stories. They need to hear your advice because people my age that were in college in 2007, mm-hmm. eight, didn't, we didn't know what was going on. We're just like watching YouTube and like, <laughs> we're going to class. Yeah. I mean, we, we didn't know what the heck yeah. was going on. So that that's why I ask you that and 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 that's huge. One one I guess piece of advice or personal philosophy about it though is like we all have our political views and whatever and and that's but what I somebody told me early early on and it always stuck with me it was like don't ever blame or give credit to politics and the economy for your success or failure. If you want to be wealthy, the the most successful and most wealthiest people figure out how to adapt to the economy yeah. and create a strategy that Hey, if interest rates go up, here's, here's how I'm going to do a deal. Or, Hey, if, you know, this tax gets implemented or this type of thing happens, you you just have to plan differently and plan better. And I think that, you know, I, I I will never, I'll never blame a politician for my success or fail, you know, blame a politician for a failure in a deal or real estate. And I'll never give them credit for it either. I think that, you know, you just have to adapt your strategy to what's going on in the economy. And, And if you do that, then, you know, you're not going to lose sleep over, you know, who's doing what in office and whatever, just it, it, that can be exhausting and, and, and take your eye off the ball, which I mean, the biggest fortunes have been made, no matter what's happening politically or economically, people can, yep. you can take advantage and create a strategy that uh, adapts to any, any economic condition. It's true. I got that same advice early on and I was all mad about a certain president 
a few years ago that got elected and and people get so caught up in, oh, my life's going to be ruined because mm-hmm. Trump's doing this or my life's going to be ruined because Obama did this. And yeah, I honestly don't pay attention to that. I vote for who I vote for. And at the end of the day, it's up to you to make the best of the situation. You know, Warren yeah. Buffett loaned Goldman Sachs 10 billion. Is that right? <laughs> During the downturn, he was ready for it and yeah. he took advantage and you know, the number one, the home builder in Utah, they were buying property. They had a cash reserves. They had about 7 million bucks, I believe. And they were, they were making offers to the bank at 30 cents on the dollar a month later there. And the bank would say, no, a month later, they come back at 20 cents on the dollar and, <laughs> and certain, you know, the economy changes, then they take advantage of a certain way. And, and laws change in Utah, and, and they've done really well no matter what. So that's I think great. that's a really good point. Absolutely. And, and don't do a deal just to do a deal. I have a lot of investors that they're so excited to buy an income property because they've been listening to Bigger Pockets, which is a great podcast. Yep. Or they've been watching HDTV and they want to flip so bad and yep. the margins aren't there. And you have to be patient. I, I've been waiting to find a really good deal for eight months now. I haven't done a deal in a while. I built a bunch of fourplexes last year in Idaho and I haven't bought land since then because it hasn't been the right land and right. sent out plenty of LOIs and gotten zero accepted right? because we yeah. won't come up to the market. You know, we know what we need to do. We, we need to be conservative in this market. And so yeah. I, I love what you said there. A couple of guys I really respect that were in our meeting last weekend. Neither of them have bought, purchased a deal this year. Yeah, and, you know, one had remarked to me that he was getting his last deal. You know, it was a value add opportunity, getting all the ducks in a row there to make sure that deal ran well. Yep. And, and you know, he has a number of units, but he wasn't being overly aggressive about just making deals happen. He wanted to make sure that what he made, what the first one he did, or the last, I mean, the last deal that he did, does what it, it, he said it was going to do for his investors. The other guy, I think, is doing doing a similar thing, and he's also like trying to make sure that it's the right deal that fits his parameters rather than just jumping into any old deal because I mean, anybody will sell if the price is right. Right. Oh, if yeah. somebody comes along and says, you know, we just bought a 205 unit for about 10 and a half million. If somebody came in and offered me 14 million today, I'd probably take it. Right. And it does yeah. not say it's yeah. worth it, but you go out and you say, okay, we, we, we flipped this and made quick money, but that's what, that's what's happening is then people are just, they want to do a deal. So they, they drive this, these prices up that aren't really sustainable. Here's one for you. I was analyzing one in in a really, really good location. I mean, it's a B asset built in 95 in an A plus location that yes. is older, but gentrifying plus a ton of business going in there. You know, we're in the Silicon slopes yeah. kind of business coming in and asking price was 38 million. And so I'm working backwards, <laughs> working backwards. <laughs> I got down to offer of $24 million. <laughs> and I was like, wow. I cannot offer more than 24 million for this property. That's the guy right. owes 28, I found out. Wow. And he's probably going to get 38 because all of these investors are excited about the silicon slopes yeah. and all the jobs, which it's amazing. Sure. But that that's property, the type of property that will be affected by the, the downturn because at some point yeah. then it won't be sustainable. Yep. Um, Unless rents increase by about $350 a month. And they, well, they could eat, they could put down 60, 70%, you know, if sure. they wanted for a down payment and there's investors doing that, to be honest, there's a few yeah. of them I've seen here in Utah. There's a big syndicator putting down huge amounts of money 
because he realizes he's buying assets at a five cap, maybe a four cap and, yep. but he can also raise 40 million in a month. So, um, wow. he's in a good position. So look, we don't have a lot of time left. I want to promote you. You're, I know you're coaching for Rod Cleef. Is that right? I, I, yeah, I am. I have a handful of students with Rod. Rod's got a great platform, you know, give, give him a plug here, but you know, if people are looking at coaching and, you know, find some guru, you know, somebody that, that has a platform out there. There's, you know, Rod's not the only guy find right. somebody to connect with and somebody I mean, that's done it. That was my yeah. big thing. I actually paid for the coaching for Rod and I said, I need a coach yeah. that has units is actively buying units, operating units and has a track record. And, yeah. and that's what, who you are. So if people want to reach out to you, ask you questions, invest in your deals. I know you're yeah. looking for more deals. It, I mean, you have, more than 15, what is it? Uh, 17 years experience. That's huge. Yeah. That's the type of person I look for when I look for a partner or a yeah. coach or a mentor. What else do you have going on that we can promote or that we can, we can do for you? Sure. I, I appreciate it, man. You know, we're, you know, like I said, I've been doing, spend some time giving back, you know, by coach, you know, helping Rod with some of the students. So I don't, don't have a lot of that because I still have, you know, a business to run. So, right. but I really enjoy, I really enjoy that. And again, you know, anybody can find me on Facebook or LinkedIn just under Jason Perro. If they want to hit me up personally, they can, you know, my email is just my first last name, Jason Perro at yahoo.com. My cell phone, they can call me to just right. don't use it, but 814-397-8030. You know, we've got a nice pipeline of deals in Erie. You know, I love, I love our area. And, and, and if anybody wants to talk about what we've got going on here, would love to, um, would love yeah, to connect. Maybe I'll fly out and I need, I need to place some money. I've got, got quite a bit of money. I've, I've been waiting to find the right operator to partner with the right guy raising money. <laughs> last thing about last that I wanted to mention raising money the right way. I think yeah. it was clear last week and there's some people yeah. doing it not yeah. the right way. Do you do 506 B or C investments? We do B. you know, the reason the reason I didn't want to do the C, I mean, it would be really easy at that point to, if you do a C to, to advertise and promote. And I didn't yeah. feel as though I had those channels set up properly, but additionally with the B, I have just friends and acquaintances and Me too. people on our social network that maybe they're retired and have like a really nice nest egg, but they're not making $200,000 a year. Right. Yep. And, and yep. I think that I wanted to be able to serve that type of investor. Yeah. So, so we do, you know, we do five or six B's. Now I had a conversation with a friend of mine that's also in Rod Cleef's universe earlier this afternoon mm-hmm. that, you know, if you are going to partner up, I mean, you really want to make sure that you, you follow the rules and that think yep. long and hard about, you know, doing it the right way because yep. what, you know, if, and when the, the economy turns, you don't want to be stuck answering some really difficult questions with the SEC. And oh, so, yeah. Oh yeah. You know, as an example, if somebody has a lot of money or access to money to bring to a deal, you know, understand what, what else they can bring to the deal. Maybe it's, you know, it's just it, not just due diligence, but be money, right? Yeah. An advisory role, you know, and, and like having, you know, legitimately having like monthly planning meetings and, and, yep. and, you know, having eyes and ears in the deal, not just like, cause if, if you pay to play and if, if somebody's just getting compensated for bringing money to a deal, that's playing with fire. And, and I think that that was, that's been made very clear. So right, I think right. um, just do it the right way and, and then good things will continue to come. Just take the time it takes to really map out what, what the right way looks like and, and having the right people on your team. 
That, that's huge. I, I am very, very slow to pull the trigger. I do my research and I, I wish my investors would do that as well sometimes. Uh, <laughs> but when I do, I go in full throttle. You know, I go in hard and, and I'm going to be very, very aggressive, but I do my research and a couple partners the same way. Well, listen, I, I've got to jump on another call. I don't want to take all day for you, but you've been super valuable. 